0: Hi, and welcome to Fashion Talks, a podcast about observing the world through the lens of fashion. I'm your host, Donna Bishop, and we are live at Toronto Fashion Week with a wonderful audience here in Yorkville Village. And today I am joined by Louis Sakira, costume designer for The Shape of Water and assistant costume designer for the same film and steel. Thank you so much for being here, and congratulations, of course, on all the awards and accolades. Does it get Old Hearing Academy Award nominee for Best Costume?
1: No, it's uh, it's completely new to me, so uh, I'm loving it.
0: Well, congratulations. Before we start to dig deeply into um, into The Shape of Water, can you give us just a little bit of a background of you know how you got started, and what is the process of the costume designer? How do you guys work together? How do you work with the director? And sort of a a big picture of of what that role looks like on a feature film set.
1: Um, I think both Anne and I came from the fashion world. Uh, I was a, a designer and had a small boutique on Queen West, West by Ossington, back when the earth was uh, cooling. <laughs> and uh, Anne was in. Um, I
2: was was sales rep for a clothing company out of uh, France, yeah.
1: And, and so, you know, left, left the fashion industry, had some friends that were working on a David Cronenberg f- picture, and, and I met some of them, and uh, I had the chance to be a trainee, and so I worked on a series called Friday the 13th, and I was a trainee on that, and then started to work through each, each uh, position through the department until I started designing.
0: Amazing. And how does the costume designer work with with the director, with the art department, with the costume, with the production designer? Part of me, like when you sit down and, and you look at the script for the first time, what's the process in all of you working together on on the director's vision of the of the film?
1: Uh, well, obviously, you read the script uh, for the first time, and a key to that is if the script is really good, the images start floating up. Um, If the script's not so good, you're like "Mm, having a hard time envisioning that this this world. And with uh, with Guillermo's uh, screenplay, um, it was pretty good. It was odd. It was here's a woman falling in love with a merman, and there were a little bit of a cocking. But from that, uh, you basically start envisioning that that world. Then then you have meetings with the director. Um, listening to his vision, and then you coordinate with the production designer um, on how he is going to be uh, developing the environments that these characters are in. And um, then it's a process of doing research and collecting um, fabrics and putting that together. And it just goes on and on and on. I mean, it's it's a long process.
0: And with The Shape of Water, it's a, it's a period piece set in the, in the early 60s, and it wa- how many people have seen the film? Okay, so we won't put out any big spoilers, because some people still haven't had the pleasure of seeing this beautiful piece of cinema. But, you know, it is period, it's set in the early 60s in the Cold War. What were some of the references and some of the research you were doing in terms of, you know, some specific references for starting to, to build the costume vision?
1: Well, we did, the, we did the basic, which was a lot of catalog, catalog referencing just so that everyone in the department was very clear on, on what the basics were for that time. But then we, we also did a lot of advertising and um, uh, personal references from that time, and we were looking at working-class people, and, and um, we had four volumes of uh, probably 200-page uh, binders full of photo reference, uh, which uh, divided between working class and scientists and a- astronauts and um, to really create this kind of reference for, for us to look at. Uh, looking at period movies was also a, a great way to understand the interpretation of that period. And even though it was set in the 60s, for me, I wanted to have design elements that were from the 50s and from the 40s. and I, I was, really was hand-picking beautiful things uh, within both the reference and when we started... Curating this collection that we, I wanted to use in the, in the movie to bring together for the picture.
0: And Anne, can you tell us a little bit about the textile research you did? Because I know textiles were such a huge part of, of the process, and, and you looked at a few.
2: We did. We looked at a few. Lewis and I spent about a week in New York at the very beginning of prep, and uh, we swatched just like from 9 in the morning, I think, until they closed at night. And we just went through... And what does it mean when you swatch? Them? So we would go in, and we would look at all the fabrics. And we, luckily there, they have them already kind of sometimes pre-cut. And we would just go from there and just take... We had bags and bags of different wools and cottons and silks and everything you could imagine. And when we came back, um, we actually put it together in a library that we had um, kind of... We had a designed kind of studio, and we had this library there of fabrics done by... Um, all of our contacts in New York. And it just made it really easy. Like if Lewis and Guillermo needed something, we would refer back to that and then...
1: To the wool section, to the yeah, cotton yeah. section. Yeah, it was great. How many swatches great. would oh you say God. you had in your
0: in your library? Thousands. Reference? Thousands. Thousands. That's Thousands. amazing.
1: And then yeah. we, we had to, you know, coordinate with each of the vendors. So we actually created a double book. So one would stay with the vendor so we could reference. Yeah. We want, you know, we were in the store pulling two two of everything and leaving a, a set with the vendor so that it was an easy, mm-hmm. you know, we need 15 meters meters of yeah. this. What?
2: They were all numbered. So we would call Mood in New York and we'd say we want, you know, 15 yards of number two. And they would.
1: What we found, though, is the minute we were we, we were <laughs> digging very deep in the back regions and they'd pull it out. And yeah. And by the time we called, it was, it was like, gone. oh, that stuff, that's sold. Yeah. So.
0: so it's a game of a little bit of hide and bit. seek and a scavenger yeah. Yeah, a hunt to find totally the right too. pieces. Yeah, for sure. Um, Lewis, you said something when we were speaking earlier that I thought was so, um, such an amazing way to kind of understand the, the role of the costume designer. You said that part of your job is turning the costumes back into clothing. And can you explain a little bit about what you mean by that? Because I think that's so... It's such a poignant um, comment on a film like this where you look at it and it's like, oh, they're in they're clothes. Like, we, costumes, we can think of these sweeping, you know, Elizabethan gowns and whatnot.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, what I th- think a lot of people don't know about this project is that we built just about everything for the for the lead characters. So that would be hats, belts, uh, ties, shirts, the suits, uh, undergarments, bras, slips, jewelry. Um, we had a hat maker in Chicago, and, and so that's amazing and, and very creative, and everything's brand new. And now we have to make everything kind of look like it's lived a life. And you know we all are here, we're all wearing something that might be one year old, two years old and so and, and to, to turn those costumes back into clothing, I had a, a team of people that would over and create patina and, and, and that in itself, it's a very on a wardrobe level, it's a very quiet film, but that was, I think, the strength of it was to, to help tell that story and not look and say oh my god, that's really brand new.
0: And I think the story that gets told through some of the characters is so interesting. Like when we look at Gilles, um, and he's got layers to his character that we sort of get hints of, and yet his costume is so layered as well. Are those, sort, are those some of the things that you're thinking of as you're telling the character's story with their costumes?
1: Yeah, I mean, with, with Gilles, um, Giles, Giles? Giles. Giles? Giles. Giles, sorry. Yes, no. uh, with Giles, um, the story behind his character was that he was quite affluent in the mid 50s. Um, doing advertising and um, he was gay in a time that it was not acceptable and uh, and during this time he developed a, a drinking habit lost his job and, and so uh, between styling him in a mid-50s um, look but also creating these clothes that were quite old, but well taken care of. So, you know, little mens and well-pressed, but you could tell that every, he really stood out from the rest of the film as being in a different time zone. Um, and then also, you know, that he was gay, it was like a covering up um, aspect to his costuming.
0: And Eliza, too, Like one of the things that I think the film does so well is it kind of walks this line between whimsy and fantasy and, and the very real life of the Cold War. And Eliza's character is the one that kind of seems to straddle both of them in many ways, because we see hints of whimsy in her character that we don't see in her colleagues or, or in the other members of the cast. Where do you incorporate that into her? And is that something you were thinking of?
1: Well, I think, I think for her, I mean... She was the princess in the in in this picture, and so uh, every element had to have a little beauty, a little grace, a little. Um, I, I remember us talking about doing these undergarments that uh, you know. I we ended up never seeing it, but it was the most beautiful slip in the world that we painstakingly made. But it was just because I wanted uh, beautiful details, which harks back to that. Finding a, a slip from the 30s and then incorporating, a, incorporating it in, into the picture,
0: and would have been very indicative of how clothing was made at that time as well, would it not, Anne? Like you're replicating as things would have been at that time, and then having to age them for the yeah, free. that's correct. I mean, Lewis has assembled
2: this amazing team. Like I'm new to the team; I've only been in it part, like I think, three years.
1: That's not that new. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> it's new. It's new. They've been together for a long time. And he works so closely with the, the, the cutter who, it was like unbelievable to watch the simpatico between the two of them. And she just knows, like she, they have the short, the shorthand. And so they just, it just happened. Like You've it was literally like in front of our eyes. Yeah, it was amazing. Your it was eyes. really amazing. It's too bad you don't get to see all of it in the film.
0: Let's talk about the color palette a little bit because the palette of The Shape of Water is so beautiful. I felt like I was underwater watching it a lot of the time yet it referenced that cold air the cold war era as well how did that develop and how did you need did you have to create your own hues or how did that come about
1: I think early on the film was supposed to be done in black and white and that was something that was brought to my you know Guillermo said let's do it in black and Mm -hmm. white and so you know we I studied the fabrics on on how they react in black and white because it's it's an odd thing you you deal with contrast um by way of a, of a meeting between Guillermo and the studio, it was decided that he could get more money for color for the picture and so we went <laughs> to color. It was uh, $3.5 million, which in a $20 million feature, that's, that's a good size. Um, so we moved into color and Paul Osterberry, um, the amazing production designer, uh, and I and Guillermo all discussed pa- uh, color palettes and we would have um, the watercolors on, on one area, a black and white palette in another area, um, and then there was a, a future um, palette, which was mid-60s, which incorporated avocado and tangerine and Cherise. And, um, and so the whole movie was really set happy in the black and white non-color world and, and the color was viewed as ugly future. So um, we had a color palette that we, we would stick to and, and it was every color of green from the deepest ocean to the Caribbean. For for Sally, um, until we injected red into into her costume. Um, well, and
0: the red comes at very you know no spoilers, but the red comes at very specific times in the in the film. What what it, what was the purpose of of having that pop of color? It wasn't just to kind of jar the eye. What what was it communicating for the for the characters?
1: Well, I think at the be- at the beginning of the film, uh, you see the Eliza character looking at a pair of red shoes and a in a window and admiring them and, and longing for them. Um, and, uh, you know, without any spoilers, there's an event that happens in the movie that, that changes. Uh, it's pivotal to her change and resolve. And red really symbolized her her, her inner strength. Here was a, a woman that was uh, in the back background, couldn't speak, and yet um, had so much to say for someone who, who had no voice. And uh, so the red was was symbolizing the the resolve and it started with a shoe and a headband and then and then grew from there
0: i couldn't help but think of dorothy and the wizard of oz when i saw them and how eliza like she would have been familiar with that film as well given her her love of old hollywood movies well they of course weren't that old then it would have been in the 60s but that that whole the dorothy reference for her might have resonated as well as someone who was pushing herself to a to a new place to a new land yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah. yeah. It never came up that, never came that up reference. That. It's the that's the first an interesting, ever
1: interesting. That's an interesting yeah, it's film
0: student yeah. history coming yeah, out. Love good. it.
2: No. <laughs> it's true though, but yeah, that was nothing that never never really came up in any discussion. No. 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 It
0: was when we you mentioned the future and how the color palette changes. We've got a shot up here of Michael Shannon in his house. Um, it's almost a shock to the system how jarring the palette changes. What was about the future that was happening? How else was the future being communicated? Because we do get pulled out of this world all of a sudden. I'm thinking of his wife and the costume and her hair.
1: Well, I think, I think what... from what, Guillermo wanted us to see a completely different side of society so that we were, we were affixed to why the world in our film, everyone but the Michael Shannon family was in this black and white world. And uh, conversely, I think it showed Michael Shannon being a modern man stuck in this, you know, backwater area, doing his time so that he could move ahead within, within the government. Um, and I thought it was very effective.
0: It w- it's a real moment of, of realizing that there is a world outside of of the world of the Institute and Eliza's world, like there's a whole other, a whole other place happening. Um, to go back to, to the Institute just for a sec, because I, love, I was really curious when you were talking about how everything was new and you had to, to break it down. So when we look at the lab coats, like things we take as just like regular clothing, all of that needed to be, to be shaped and broken. Is, is, was that part of the, the process for you guys in those scenes where it looks like just stuff you could pull off a. A costume rack practically?
1: Yeah, uh, those, those lab coats were built um, as, as were the cleaning uniforms, and uh, we sent them out to be sandwashed uh, repeatedly to give them, to really break down that, the textile before we even began to paint and, and age them. And I had an amazing team headed by uh, Melanie Turcotte from Montreal, who we were so fortunate to have her with her eye and incredible um, sense of color. Um, and we then took those things that had had the fundamental sand washing and then would add shading into, uh, the, the, the cleaning uniforms were completely shaded. If you were to look at them right here, you'd be like, oh my God, it's like a painting. There's like, there's deep turquoise in a fold and, and everything was airbrushed and then sanded and, uh, even the, the accent color was dyed. We had nine shades of, of colors that we... We're trying to figure out which we want, which one we wanted, and Guillermo had picked. And we had, I'd say, thirty yards of fabric that were draped. It was like Marrakesh; they were draped over, over racks, um, drying, and everything was, really specifically, dyed to what we needed. That it matched the tile in the in the in the office. In How the
0: long did office. it take you to make all of these? Like the, the from the process of starting production of the costumes to them you know, being shot in production. How long, how long does it take to create all of this?
2: Oh, I think it was only, I think it was about 10 weeks. Yeah, uh, I had 12. So, yeah, we you started, guys came. yeah, beginning, of, the rest of the team started beginning of June. Uh, Lewis started in May, and we started shooting middle
1: of August.
0: And do you have duplicates for characters? Like, does Eliza have various versions of her, of her cleaning uniform?
1: The cleaning uniform, we had, we, we had a probably about five, just to, to service the needs of, of um, but the finale of the film, like Michael Shannon, everyone that was involved with the water, we had multiples uh for that. And we actually uh shot for three weeks in pouring rain at night, and all of those garments had interliners that we put in that were fused to help uh keep the actors as dry as possible, because here we were, you know, we were in October shooting all night at the dock in pouring rain and didn't matter that the water was heated. By the time it hit the actors, it was it was freezing.
0: The glamour of Hollywood.
1: <laughs> and and there we were under umbrellas, Anne and I, and we don't do the set. We're back at the office, but there we were till probably two or three in the morning.
0: Yeah, yeah holding umbrellas,
1: keeping people warm. Uh, we had warm buckets for people's feet because really that was the worst. People were just so cold.
0: I want to talk about Eliza again just for a little bit because she clearly she has a finesse for fashion herself We see with her accessories. Talk to us a little bit about her shoes
1: Um, Well her shoes so here's here's a, a woman who we see very early in the film has a wall of shoes and yet peculiarly she's wearing just one pair of shoes and and I, I took that from my mom, actually, who also was was kind of a fashion plate and would buy things. Um, and much like many women of that time, uh, would wear the one pair, save all those shoes for for, for you know a special occasion. And so um, she had a shoe fetish, but she she didn't she didn't really quite do it. And and that you know that was that also spoke to the red shoes. She bought those red shoes, and it was one of many shoes that she had, and and it spoke to her resolve at the time, to wear those red shoes, and especially to work, which in that day would have been simply cray-cray.
0: How did you and Guillermo come to work together on this? What was the process like in terms of you being brought into this film?
1: Um, I had the uh, fortunate uh, luck of uh, doing a movie called Mama, um where he executive produced and uh, I was in a fitting with uh, Jessica Chastain who had gone through hair and makeup and done this transformation of being from uh, you know a redhead to a short Bob I'm sure some of you've seen that movie and so she was uh, I put her in her first change which was kind of a indie rocker look and she went into the fitting room and uh, we opened the door and then I went in was doing a little sorry to go on, but we open up the door, and there's Guillermo del Toro, and he, by way of the wig and the look, he was just like, holy, it's amazing, <laughs> and so, and that was the first thing I put on her, and it was one of the, the mainstays of the, the character in that movie, so we connected uh, immediately, and then he asked me to do The Strain, uh, where he directed the pilot, and then he would come in every season and do, you know, a Mexican, 1960s Mexican segment that played into, into this vampire apocalypse, or uh, 1800. Anyway, we had an ongoing um, ongoing relationship. Uh, during the course of a meeting uh, near the end of the third season, he, after a production meeting, he said, can you wait a minute? And I'm like, sure. And I thought, uh-oh, he's not liking something. And uh, he said, listen, I'm doing this black-and-white movie. Uh, about a merman, and and I want you to do it. I'm like, okay, like when does it start? So that's that's how that came about.
0: And what's his approach to costumes? How does he see costumes as being part of the landscape of the film?
1: Sorry, I'm just talking no. away. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Well, for Guillermo, I mean, costumes are instrumental. A, a, a thing that he's told me that he that has stuck with me really since he's told me, and I incorporate into my own design. Is that he speaks to when we walk into a set, not that picture, but when you will,
0: will yes, we'll so refer when we walk into sure. a set,
1: uh, the set is there, the actors stand in a set and and we see them from afar and we get in, we, we get an environment, but the minute you go into a close up, the clothing becomes the set for for the actor, and it 's the set dressing and so in design work. Um, every angle is important. The back, the back is as important as the front, is as important as the side. And it's something that resonated to me um, in film, and, and I take my fitting photos in the round, so I have people do a turn, and it, it helps my process of designing, but also we can see problems before they happen. And, and literally, that's what we do. Generally, we solve problems they don't even know they have in costume.
0: Do you find you reference your background in fashion as you're designing for film?
1: Yeah, I think so. It, it's all fundamental. Um, Mike Cutter, who I've known since I was 18, did patterns for me when I was in fashion. And we flash forward. This is marking 30 years that we've known each other. More than that, but but 30 years we've been working together. And um, it's totally part. Like, the foundation... that. Having done every position in the department, having had the fashion background, and I mean in the factory, working with the contractors, putting the buttons on, uh, doing the cut sheets, uh, all of that has helped when we're doing a film to be completely organized in, because it's a business. At the end of the day, it's, it's art, but it's a business. And one can be an artist, and if you are over budget, then... That was nice because you're not going to get hired again. So it really is about incorporating the the balance between art and finance and um, yeah.
0: Yeah, and what the final product
1: needs needs to be. Totally.
0: What about you, Anne? Do you find your drawing on your fashion background when you're when you're working on set?
2: Oh, for sure. Like exactly what Lewis said. I mean, it's I w- where I came from fashion. It was the same thing. I would go and I would you know I'd be in the um, in with the designers and then I would. I have to get it to the customer. So it's the same kind of thing here. I work with Lewis, and we have to get it to set. So it's that same kind of fluid motion from one place to another, and that's what I do, like, in the department. So,
1: yeah, for sure. That's suppliers. That's tailors. That's, you know, the current project we're on, we ordered 2,500 square feet of red dyed sheepskin for a Santa Claus costume. And, from shape um, of
0: water to Santa Claus I know, crazy right
1: <laughs> and and it's coming from Istanbul and and so you know dealing with with that I mean again from our fashion background it's it's uh, in such an integral part of being able to deal with the varying shades of, of film because you can you can be doing something futuristic and the next one will be 30s um, and you have to draw on all those experiences to to uh, to get the get the the best look you can
0: now there's clearly an amazing ride that's happening right now with the awards Mm -hmm. award season and all the amazing accolades that shape of water and and you guys personally have been receiving how does working on a project like this like shape of water strikes me as one of those like special once in a lifetime kind of projects how does it how does it change you beyond the accolades and and the nominations how does it does it shift you inside in terms of the lens you look through new projects with, or what is what's been inspiring about about this project for you guys?
1: I've oh. talked a lot, so.
2: <laughs> oh my gosh, I you know when we first when Lewis came to me and said we we're going to do this movie with Guillermo, I have to say I was a little terrified. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you learned someone like Guillermo and and Lewis, you just you kind of learn so much. I can't imagine doing another film that will be anything like this. Like, it was so special. We were on set all the time. We were there for every moment. And now to see this happen and everyone, you know, it's so well received and everyone's loving it. And it's like, it it's so, so unbelievably special. It's a gift. Like, it really, truly is been a gift, this film.
1: And I, I mean, we would go to a new set, for instance, the hallway set in Eliza's or Eliza's apartment. And literally, we'd be like, oh, oh my, my God, God, this is beautiful. Like, Exquisite—the set dressing, the art direction, and then to place our clothing in it—it it, was—and then to see a, to see the first time it's being being actually filmed, and the performances because the performances are amazing. I mean, Sally Hawkins, for a person who cannot speak, the the emotions that she can emit are unbelievable, and the cinematography and um, I'm telling you now, and I'm still got shivers. It, it really is uh, once in a lifetime. I hope I hope. It's not just once, no. but um, it was uh, something that everyone poured their heart and soul into, and I think you can see it on screen, and I think that's what people um, take with it.
0: And was it lovely to shoot in Toronto as well, with both of you being Canadian? Was it nice to do it on, on home turf, so to speak? Was that just another kind of layer of awesomeness? Oh, yeah, working at home is amazing. Like it's, <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a, you know, a sense of
2: calm and peace, and we have, you have your people around you, you get to go home at night. It is. It was great. Guillermo loves Toronto. He loves his Toronto cruise. He's you know very thankful. So, it was definitely. It was definitely great to have to be here.
1: And, and the locations too. I mean, Guillermo was celebrating um, the locations in 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 Toronto. So like the Lakeview lunch, um, he loved that that place. And uh, we shot. Uh, interestingly enough, we were just in Hamilton and the car dealership, which was an old. Uh, old uh, drugstore in Hamilton uh, again a whole different world you know in the f- in the movie where you go to this slick uh, location and it's been torn down and we were having lunch across the street we are like oh and so it's kind of it's kind of great to, to know that that place has been put on the screen and will be remembered
0: in the scenes where I'm thinking at the at, in the opening did, was there act- like the, it's where it's un- literally underwater. Was that mostly CGI, or was were you having to manipulate the fabrics and everything in some sort of tank? Like, how did how did that opening scene, as we were coming through in the credits? This is not a spoiler. You can like it's in the first 30 seconds.
1: Um, Well, with with the beginning of the film and and the end of the film, I think that's what I love about Guillermo's movies. Um, In general, he always picks you up tells you a story and then drops you back down. And I think you will find that with every last film of his, um, from Cronus to Devil's Backbone to... um,
0: Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's
1: Labyrinth. It's always a pick you up and drop you down. In this case, it was in water. And so there was some discussion about doing uh, tank work versus what what in the industry is called dry for wet. And so it was decided after much discussion to do it uh, dry for wet. So that whole opening sequence... Um, is done with incredible lighting, slowing the frame of the camera down. Um, you know, Sally was in a harness, everything was on wires, um, and we built a, a nightgown that you know, ripped open and en- en- encompassed the, the harness, um, and it worked really beautifully. And the same at the end. Um, you know, Sally's coat was made out of a double knit, her dress was uh, a polished cotton. And so we were doing dry for wet at the at the end as well. And so I my, I thought, well, we have to do this in something else in order to give that flow. And so again, she was on a harness, and we built the coat in a viscose knit um, that had the same feel um, texture-wise, but was very limp and 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 moved. And then uh, we were able to find a, uh, a rayon that had the exact same textile qualities. And we built the costume um, with that, and so again, with a little bit of a fan and beautiful lighting, uh, you'd never know it. And uh, you know, I talk to people out of the industry, and they're like, "What?" Oh, well. But but um, very cool.
0: And I thought it was so amazing for her character when we to see her in the red coat at the end. Like that was just very indicative. We see the shoes, and then we see the headband, and then at the at the end, she is encased in that in that color.
1: Yeah, and and it painstakingly we, we were deciding what color red to work with all that green and uh, it's quite a blue red which is really quite, quite stunning in, in that um, color palette
0: Have there been any pinch me moments that come to mind immediately through this amazing experience? I had one yesterday with <laughs> 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 seeing a picture of Lewis with
2: Meryl Streep and that was it for me, I was like oh my god That's pretty cool Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> That was my pinch me moment for sure yeah, I couldn't. It was amazing. i was so happy for him.
1: Yeah, uh, we had the the Oscar luncheon on Monday, and uh, uh, it was just incredible, un- unbelievable. So you know, you're in that. You go up and take the classroom photo, and you know, we've all seen those things. You know, Lucille Ball and you know Greta Garbo, and 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 so they called my name and that walk, and you you literally are floating. You, you <laughs> I don't know how I got from my table to, to that, and, and then. Um, then they, you know, take all these photos and you're kind of stunned. And then they said, you know, okay, congratulate yourself. And everybody just screamed and, you know, did their thing. And, and it was really amazing. And well, we will be
0: watching for the awards and rooting for the shape of water for sure. Lewis and Anne, thank you so very, very much thank for you. the conversation. It's been a pleasure having you here. If people want to, uh, to follow you on, on social and, and see, you know, Give you shout outs when the awards come up and where can people follow you? Oh, I'm AMSYYZ on Instagram and Twitter. Awesome. And Lewis?
1: Uh, Lewis uh, underscore costumes uh, on uh, Instagram.
0: On Instagram. Oh. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Thank you so much to CAFA, our producing partner with this podcast. If you want to know more about the Canadian Arts and Fashion Awards, you can follow us at CAFA Awards. That's C-A-F-A-W-A-R-D-S. And a special thank you to Toronto Fashion Week for having us here. Uh, Please follow us on social. We're at Fashion Talks Podcast. You can visit our website to see images that we've talked about during the course of this podcast and the other ones that we have up. There. Uh, You can follow me at This is Donna B. And until next time, this is Fashion Talks. Thanks so much for being here.